Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Jennifer Brandt. Jennifer is the Executive Director of the Innovation Council. I'm going to be talking to Jennifer about some of what Jennifer is working on, such as inclusive innovation ecosystems and enabling innovation policies. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Jennifer. Jennifer provides policy analysis and strategic advice to companies, NGOs, industry groups, and intergovernmental organizations on global market access and regulatory issues. Her work focuses on policy matters related to innovation, technology transfer, intellectual property, healthcare, and trade. For more than a decade, she has led a Geneva-based consulting business. Jennifer has graduate degrees in international law and international development and economics from SIS and the Graduate Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer, and thank you so much for chatting with me. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. And Jennifer, as I mentioned during the intro, you're the executive director of the Innovation Council. So can you tell us a little bit about the Innovation Council and some of the work that it's doing? Sure. The Innovation Council is a platform that helps to bring the perspectives of different innovators to policymakers. We have a really diverse membership. We have SMEs, big companies, funders, incubators, tech transfer offices, et cetera. And the golden thread is that we work with anybody who's bringing new solutions to society. So that's what they have to be doing to participate in this initiative. And basically, we share information about how IP management works in different scenarios, about how different innovation policy choices affect innovators at different moments in time, in different fields of technology, in different places. And we work on a lot of different topics. So things like biomanufacturing networks. How do you extend biomanufacturing globally? Or how do you tackle the IP diversity gap? What was the relationship between IP and the COVID response? You know, how does wireless technology licensing work? So the breadth of topics that we cover is very broad and really reflects the diversity of our membership. How do you decide what topics to focus on? So we let the members guide that. They come with things they'd like to talk to policymakers about, areas where they feel like in some places policymakers aren't really getting it quite right or else things that they see happening they'd like to weigh in on. And they ask if we can help connect them to either people in Geneva at organizations like WIPO, WTO on trade policy issues, um, or else sometimes even in people at the national level working with other members. It really is amazing all the different areas that the Innovation Council is working on. And I wanted to ask you about one of the things that caught my eye on your website, which was, is the Inclusive Innovation uh, Ecosystem. And I know uh, the Innovation Council has partnered with WIPO and Invent together to focus on the IP gender gap. Can you talk a little bit about some of the work you're doing in this area? So when we started Innovation Council about two years ago, a priority was to address issues that matter for SMEs, 
for innovators in emerging countries, and then also for underrepresented groups. And on this last point, we started our work on inclusive innovation ecosystems, in part focusing on the gender IP gap, really looking at emerging best practices globally to address it. And then also ways of analyzing the scope of the gap, um, the reasons why it exists, et cetera. And so our plan is eventually to expand to cover the IP diversity gap work to include other groups as well, but we started with gender. And I, I've been really impressed with WIPO's strong commitment in this area. Um, they've brought on you know, a new expert to work on this issue across all the parts of the organization. They've appointed a gender champion. They even have a dedicated member of the economics team working on this, this issue, Elodie Carpentier. So I work with Qualcomm. Qualcomm is a member of the Innovation Council, and they're also a member of this group based in Washington called Invent Together, which does fantastic work in the U.S. context on areas like gender disaggregated data collection by PTO, um, really looking at different types of IP diversity gaps. And so Qualcomm introduced me to the executive director of Invent Together, Holly Fechner, and she was really interested in bringing that work global. So we collaborated with people at WIPO, including Chief Economist Carson Fink, Marco Aleman, Deputy Director General, and we've launched a series of activities that really aim to raise awareness in different parts of the world about the gender IP gap, bring together chief economists from IP offices to talk about different methods of data collection, ways of you know, collecting gender disaggregated data especially, and then also talking to companies and tech transfer offices and seeing what they're doing in this area, what policies they're trying that are working. And to this end, we've had consultations in the Americas. We've had meetings focusing on Europe. Our next series will focus on the Asia region. And this is really about getting this on the agenda, working in partnership with the, the leadership at WIPO, which has really embraced the IP diversity gap as a priority, which I think is great. Yeah, I recently did a podcast there and it's they're doing amazing work and they have a very ambitious agenda, which uh, I believe is uh, partly due to the collaboration they have with the, the Innovation Council. So you're collecting all this data on a global basis. And so how are you going to track or measure improvements or changes in the gender gap as well as overall improvements in gender equality and diversity in IP? So remember, Innovation Council is really a platform to bring people together around innovation, trade, and IP issues that we think are important that then our membership wants us to engage on and talk about. And so here ourselves, we won't be in a position of measuring the impact of this work. What we're trying to do rather is, you know, bring together the chief economists to gather the data, analyze it up in their, their own countries, um, talk with companies and see what might work that others have tried in their context, give them the tools to map their baseline and measure progress over time, and give them access to learning from different types of organizations so they can track their own progress, measure their own impact. And I would imagine it's going to vary from country to country and jurisdiction to jurisdiction as well. Yeah, and that's why we've been doing the seminars on a regional basis. There's a lot of um, sharing that goes on, on the region, at the regional basis, um, uh, similar cultures, uh, similar experiences we found. Um, and so that approach really made sense to us to go region by region and then ultimately bring together a network of people committed to moving forward in this area on a global level. But we're not there yet. We're still engaged in our regional discussions to really pull out those emerging best practices and see also where people are looking for, for answers, where they don't have the solution to problems they're facing. 
Yeah, a lot of really great things going on. And I think the collaboration with White Bow is great. And I believe there's some going on with the USPTO as well, as well as other patent offices. So I think it's really going to be exciting to see what happens in the next couple of years on that front. And hopefully we'll be able to help close that gap more. So Jennifer, I wanted to switch gears completely and ask you about a report that you and Mark Schultz authored earlier this year that's entitled Unprecedented the Rapid Innovation Response to COVID-19 and the Role of Intellectual Property. And this is a really great report that you sent me, and thank you, by the way, that tells the story of how COVID-19 vaccines and treatments were delivered, and it focuses on the essential enabling role of IP. It covers the period through August 1st of 2021, and it tells a really great story of how innovation investments and cooperation were key, but really IP served as the foundation throughout all of this. So before we talk about the report in some detail, can you tell us about the research you performed, including who you talked to and how you structured the report? Absolutely. Um, Thanks for reading the report. It's really long. So I appreciate that. It was really long, but uh, I was going to WIPO and I had a really long plane flight. So I made the time go by fast. So thank you. Perfect. So Mark and I have worked together before, interestingly, on the gender IP gap. Back in 2018, we co-authored a paper for WIPO on that topic. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And so this time we were focusing on the innovation response to COVID. And we started working on this research in June of 2021. And as you mentioned, we cut off our research on August 1st. Things were moving really quickly and we felt like we needed to have that cutoff date. So what the report really does is provide a snapshot of a certain moment in time from the start of the pandemic through August 2021. And we look in particular, as you mentioned, at the role of IP as an enabler for the response. And our research team surveyed hundreds of articles. And as part of the research, Mark and I also interviewed more than a dozen senior executives from companies that were involved in the innovation response to COVID for the report. And I really do think that this snapshot is still relevant today, and hopefully we can talk more about that later. But our our report focuses on the industry response with government support. And I mention that because for obvious reasons, government support was very important in de-risking things like building out manufacturing capacity, conducting clinical trials, all in a very difficult and challenging environment and an urgent situation, of course. Um, So we focus really on the company's actions while acknowledging the government response as well. So one of the members of our team, Peter Brown, uh, one of our researchers, is a trained opera singer. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. And in addition to being a great researcher and writer, and it was Peter who said, I think we should organize this report as an industrial drama in three acts. So we did. And it does read like three different acts. It really is a great story. So that's that's very creative. Yeah. So act one is the development of the background technology and know-how. Act two are the R&D collaborations and the commercialization. And then act three was the work that was needed to establish these massive global manufacturing networks to get enough vaccines produced um, for as many people as possible. And the key message throughout these three acts is really about the supporting role of IP in partnership and collaboration, because nobody could have done this alone. That was a quote that we had from many people we interviewed. And just to provide one example, one of the companies told us once we had our vaccine ready, we realized we could only make 500,000 doses using our in-company manufacturing capacity. So they really had no choice but to work with partners. 
Yeah, that's one thing in reading that report was very evident to me. There was no way we were going to get to the result we did with getting these vaccines out unless there was tremendous cooperation and public-private partnerships because there was just no way any one company was going to be able to manufacture enough. It was just, it was impossible given everything that was going on in the size and scope of, of this pandemic. So Jennifer, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, some of the pre-existing innovation and, and collaborations, because if we think back to January 2020, when the pandemic was just starting, there were a lot or at least the number of underlying therapies um, that had been developed that uh, were eventually used to, to make the vaccines that we've been receiving over the last year and a half or so. And some of these uh, pre-existing innovations were quite old. Some were over 50 years old, like inactivated virus vaccines, which have been used uh, against smallpox, polio and other diseases. Some like the viral vector vaccines were in some limited use. And then, of course, what, you know, has made the news a lot, uh, the mRNA technology, which Pfizer and uh, Moderna uh, used to create their vaccines. They weren't on the market yet, but there had been a lot of research done on them and some development for, for a number of years. So while there was this tremendously strong foundation of pre-existing innovation to draw from, which we were very fortunate there was, um, this was only the start and really the biopharma industry faced tremendous challenges, which you just uh, alluded to, to innovate quickly um, to meet the challenges of the pandemic. So tell us about some of these collaborations that you mentioned, as well as some of the other efforts that went into developing these vaccines and why IP and trade secrets were so critical in these collaborations. Okay. Gosh, there's so much to comment on in that question. It's gigantic. Yes. Uh, in the legal realm, we would call that a compound question that would get objected to in court. So you could object, but I'd still like for you to answer the question. Yeah, I won't object, but maybe I'll answer it in pieces. So one point that you, you flagged, which I think is an important one to underline, is that these vaccines as my co-author likes to say, were an overnight success, years in the making. And here's why. We had companies like Moderna working for 15 years on the mRNA platform, not having yet commercialized anything at the start of the pandemic. BioNTech had been working for 25 years on the mRNA platform. J&J was working for more than 15 years on its viral vector platform. And they had an emergency use authorization for Ebola, but the technology hadn't been taken further than that yet. So many years, a lot of investment went into the state of play at the start of the pandemic. And that's a really important thing to note. The second thing is the challenge. Sometimes now, a couple of years later, I think we forget that this was an, a health issue affecting every single person in the world at one time. And the ecosystem for developing treatments is just not set up to deal with that scale. No, not at all. Yeah, we had trade policies. I mean, let's not forget, we had export bans. We had a number of supply chain interruptions, difficult transport. We had lockdowns so, so skilled personnel couldn't move. They couldn't travel to facilities for R&D and manufacturing, no travel. So the circumstances in which the innovation for the COVID response took place were particularly challenging. And I think we need to remember that. We need to go back in time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was incredible looking back at it now when you think about, you know, all those different challenges. And, you know, I've worked in the pharmaceutical area. I've done pharmaceutical patents for over 20 years. And 
And I know how long the research and development process is. I think everybody has seen the numbers and what was accomplished in a very short amount of time was just you know, beyond incredible. Yeah. And so that was the, re- the result we really found of collaboration, as you mentioned. So the next part of the compound question. Yes. Um, here, our, our interviews are really interesting. So almost every person we interviewed told us the story of how they were working with their competitors right when the pandemic started. And we were surprised because we couldn't understand how they could immediately pivot to work with competitors and share their technology and know-how. Um, this seemed really risky. So what we were told by the interviewees is that it was totally normal to them that those with the most resources, the best expertise should come together and work together to address this unprecedented health crisis. But what made that possible, they also told us, was IP protection because they knew that it was not unduly risky to share with these partners, that they could share the technology, they could share the know-how and work together without losing control over the result of years of investment And the company would still, as one person put it, exist on the other side of the pandemic, which was important to all of them. And certainly, I'd say trust played a part in a lot of these collaborations. We heard about a number of collaborations starting even without formal agreements in place, which was another surprising element. But the people working together believed that they were working within the same culture of respect for IP. They worked in jurisdictions with strong IP frameworks, and they felt confident moving forward and coming forward to share what they had on that basis. So one thing we noticed also from our research is we saw companies taking big risks. And for example, they were moving resources and people from other projects, from other R&D projects in order to accelerate their COVID response. They worked with partners, they shared what they had. And again, IP gave some comfort that they could take these risks and move personnel, move resources to these projects and that they would be able to recuperate some of those investments after, um, upon success in the marketplace. So to give one example of a collaboration that I think touches on several key points in the report about IP and the COVID response, we could talk maybe about the Pfizer-BioNTech collaboration. Yeah, that's an amazing story in the report you, you sent me. Yes, this was really fascinating because we really looked um, at the entire evolution of the technology um, going all the way back to the University of Pennsylvania, and looking at the, the way that the technology was protected and licensed to a number of different actors over time. And again, I, I reiterate the point that there was years of work carried out before the pandemic. So again, the overnight success years in the making. And Pfizer and BioNTech were already working together. So when the COVID pandemic started, they were able to pivot and apply what they were doing um, in relation to mRNA vaccines for the flu to COVID, as many people are aware. This is an interesting story also because it's an SME working with a much bigger company. Huge. Yeah, absolutely. And you would, you know, typically the SME has a lot more to lose than than the big pharmaceutical company does. Exactly. And I think, again, we can say that IP made that possible. BioNTech was able to work with Pfizer and not lose control over all of the work it had done in the past um, because of its IP position. And then again, it's an illustration of the partnership and trust that went into the development of these vaccines and these partnerships. And I think one of the interesting things um, I read in your report too was they started working on the vaccines for COVID without an agreement and they got an agreement done, I think in record time. Um, it was, I think if I'm remembering correctly, less than two weeks, which you know, I've worked on agreements in the pharmaceutical industry that sometimes take six, eight months. It, it can be 
a really slow, arduous negotiation. So I think that was another thing was, um, the, you know, the recognizing the, the seriousness of uh, the pandemic, the trust they had and, and the fact that, uh, you know, the IP protections in place. Yeah, and one thing I'd like to flag also is that once once they had the vaccine, they needed to figure out how to manufacture it at scale. The mRNA vaccine had never been made at a commercial scale. So here they brought in um, Novartis to partner with them on this. And Novartis moved people and resources off other projects to get this done. And again, this tech transfer process and figuring out how to manufacture the vaccine was done in record time. It was done in four months. And normally brownfield investments to set up manufacturing of this nature can take around 18 months at best. So it was a very fast process. And we uncovered innovation stories that we were not aware of. So for example, once they figured out how to make the vaccine at scale, they realized that in ultra cold storage, the label on the vial wouldn't stick. So they had to go back and innovate, you know, a new a new label for the ultra cold storage file. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, we heard funny anecdotes like this behind the scenes, but what struck us most was the dedication of the people working on this, you know, working seven days a week, long hours, away from their family for months at a time to make this happen. And the collaboration that was happening intensively within these partnerships. And then also the global manufacturing partnerships. So then people set out to scour the globe to identify and vet potential partners. And this was the subject of a really interesting article we saw actually as we were closing off our research window in August of 2021, a Wall Street Journal article um, tracing the travels of a, a person from Pfizer as they go across the globe looking for potential manufacturing partners, how they vet them and integrate them into the value chain through tech transfer. And that must have been particularly challenging to vet in COVID because you, you couldn't travel everywhere. And then if you did travel, you'd have to quarantine. So that must have been a really challenging task for that that individual to do. And it sounds like that was accomplished in record time, too, because that, that seems like something that would normally take months to do. Yeah, and these, these were really complex value chains from what we understood from the people we interviewed. I mean, one person told us there were, and this is in August of 2021, 200 components from 67 suppliers in 10 countries. And if you add equipment, it's 600 components. So they were setting these value chains up and making commitments to suppliers even before they had regulatory approval for the vaccines. So people were really compressing the timeline for doing different aspects of commercialization. And so in addition to the product innovation, you really saw new ways of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned regulatory, and that was another area where there was tremendous collaboration between regulatory authorities and all uh, the large pharmaceutical companies as well, because that's an, another area that uh, generally takes, as we all know, a very, very long time, you know, 10, 12, you know, longer years, depending. So what kinds of um, collaborations and what did you see coming from the regulatory authorities? So I would say in the area of regulatory, the something that's really struck us was the compression of the timeline for developing manufacturing processes and securing regulatory approval. So people were doing them during the COVID pandemic side by side. So rather than do phase one, figure out how much you need to manufacture for phase one, then phase two, yeah, figure out how much you need to manufacture. They were figuring out how to manufacture at a commercial scale while going through the different stages of clinical trials, which was unusual and risky. 
Very unusual and very, very risky. And I can only imagine the challenges that they ran into because it's a very iterative process and to, to do it all at once while you're, you know, testing these vaccines to even see that they're working because, you know, there were certainly vaccines that didn't work. And so you're scaling up and, and you don't know there's it's a big wild card whether or not it's even going to be efficacious or not. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, manufacturing and stockpiling before regulatory authority was granted is another example of some of the risks um, and, and financial risks also that the companies were taking. Um, in addition, of course, the companies were working with new partners, right? New partners were being integrated into their manufacturing networks. This required an incredible amount of technology transfer to make sure people were manufacturing on the timeline and at the quality required. And here there's an interesting data point in the report, um, which looks minuscule now, we were tracking public announcements of partnerships. And we cut off our research, as I mentioned, in August 2021. By then, we had found press releases for about 45 technology transfer and manufacturing partnerships. When I went back and checked the statistics, looking at Airfinity data a few months ago, there were more than 300 partnerships in place, 70% of which involved tech transfer so I, I was really surprised to see the growth in partnerships in such a short time. Um, and I found that really interesting. Yeah. And the report also details, like you were talking about the tech transfer itself, you know, thousands of pages of documents that had to get sent and, you know, obviously, you know, uh, processed and absorbed by the people receiving that information, which is a tremendous amount of information in a, in a very short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other misconception about how that process unfolded is the belief that there was idle manufacturing capacity around that people could just bring online. That was really not the case um, for different reasons. But a key one being that you can't have a facility for making biologics just sitting idle. But it's, it's not, there's no business case for that. And secondly, the equipment, the processes, the personnel, um, you need to keep that facility running constantly to make sure that everything is happening in the way it needs to, for quality especially. Um, and so manufacturing capacity had to be brought online. And I mentioned this process of vetting partners globally. One of the companies told us that they had to vet 100 potential partners in order to bring 10 into their manufacturing network. So this was a very resource-intensive process. And of course, tech transfer was really important to bring those partners into the network. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been talking about the importance of trade secrets and IP as an enabler to, to allow this trust um, between big pharma and, you know, small SMEs, as well as other partners in other parts of the world to manufacture these vaccines. So I, I wanted to ask you about the TRIPS waiver, which I know a lot of people know in June, um, the WTO reached an agreement um, to waive certain parts of the TRIPS agreement. So this decision now allows the waiver of certain patents related to the production and supply of COVID-9 vaccines without the consent of the patent holder, provided that there's some adequate remuneration to um, the patentee. And the argument in support of the CHIPS waiver was that innovators were slowing vaccine manufacture by refusing to grant manufacturing rights or share relevant know-how. But as we were just talking, that that wasn't the case at all. In fact, uh, there was tremendous cooperation and sharing. So um, I'm curious about your thoughts uh, on the waiver. So the TRIPS waiver clarifies certain aspects of compulsory licensing in the TRIPS agreement, as you mentioned. And as you know, this was one of the key outcomes of the WTO ministerial in June. 
um, it was seen as very important politically to show that the WTO is part of the solution to pandemic preparedness and response. And the rationale for the waiver is overriding IP rights will enable more producers to make vaccines for COVID. So right now, we have an adequate supply of vaccines. That doesn't mean that everybody who needs them is getting them. And certainly we need better systems for ensuring that the vaccines can actually get to patients, right? So the big question here is, will an IP waiver help remedy that situation? And for me, this really remains to be seen. It's early. So far, nobody has, has tried to use the waiver. And it's only going to be in testing it and using it that we'll see if it's an opposite response to the challenge of making sure everybody has access to COVID vaccines. But certainly our report and a lot of data and reporting since our report came out last year has demonstrated that quite a bit of technology and knowledge diffusion did happen in response to the pandemic as detailed in our report. And a lot of people we interviewed, again, underlined that intellectual property protection was part of what allowed this to happen by enabling them to share freely with their partners without losing control over their investments, their technology, their, their know-how. Yeah, exactly. And, and given the big investment and the risks that the biopharmaceutical industry made during this time, what do you think that means if, if with respect to the, the waiver going forward, you know, if we're going to remove or weaken IP protection for COVID-19 innovations, you know, there's going to be another pandemic. So what, what does that mean for future pandemics and collaborations such as these? So there's a few issues related to the TRIPS waiver. Um, so first, starting in September, we're going to see discussions getting started on expanding the scope of the waiver. And that's something that may be challenging for a few reasons. I wanted to give an example. It's virtually impossible to distinguish between setting aside IP protection for COVID vaccines and certain inputs and processes used to make them and for other purposes, right? Things like the mRNA platform has application beyond COVID vaccines. So I think that's a, a real legal challenge that the delegates will be faced with in September. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that the importance of IP and the collaborations and making the vaccines and then in getting them manufactured at the scale required for a global pandemic was not totally surprising to me because I've been working on biomanufacturing infrastructure, as I mentioned, for a number of years. And here what I observe is that local companies generally work in partnership with a multinational tech transfer partner. So they may start with fill and finish of vaccines, then gradually they move up the value chain to perform other higher value tasks. And this is done in partnership. And IP, again, in that process is part of what supports the collaboration, the working side by side over many years, and then ultimately the upgrading of scales and skills and capacity. Um, and this is the narrative that I hear from vaccine producers in places like Africa sure. um, through organizations such as AVMI. In terms of the effect of setting aside IP protection in relation to pandemic solutions, here based on our interviews, my sense is that the companies would still, in the event of another crisis, step forward to help. They felt an obligation to do this, right? Yeah. However, if it's unduly risky to share technology and know-how in order to react to the pandemic or the health crisis, whatever it may be, working with partners, they may pivot and do most of the work in-house. So they may limit themselves to doing what they can do using in-house resources, in-house manufacturing capacity, because otherwise it's 
very risky um, for the existence of the company after the health crisis is over. Exactly, which means that our response and getting our vaccines and our treatments is going to take a whole lot longer than it did during COVID-19. And, and that's the risk here. And so instead of, you know, being months, it, it could take years. Yeah, and I think that's it's not a threat. Uh, it's a calculation. The leaders of these companies have to look at the scenario and say, okay, if we share A, if we share B, C, what's the likely impact of that on the future of our company, on the future of our ability to research and carry these treatments forward, further develop them, et cetera. And so I think that's an important thing to understand is that by taking away IP protection for some of those technologies and and that know-how, you're creating more risk, which can undermine collaboration. Absolutely. And I have one last question for you, I promise, on COVID-19, and and then we'll move on. I, you know, in the last uh, week or so, news broke about a patent infringement lawsuit that Moderna filed against Pfizer and BioNTech over the COVID-19 vaccine. So given everything that we've talked about, the IP waiver, what are your thoughts on this lawsuit? And they also filed, uh, I should say, they filed their lawsuit not only in the U.S., but in Germany as well. So my sense is that patent litigation is part of doing business in IP-intensive sectors. Um, As we've mentioned, the mRNA platform is very important. It has many different components and applications potentially across different diseases. And we've already seen litigation around it. And so I think we can expect we'll see more, uh, such as Moderna's case. But it's early days. So so let's see. If I knew the answer to what was going to happen, I would have so many people beating down my door right now. (laughs) But I don't. Oh, yes. No, they're not knocking on your door. But yeah, that's it's going to be a fascinating case. I mean, because there are issues about Moderna making a promise that they weren't going to enforce their patents. And did they take that promise back? And who decides when the pandemic is over? Because they initially said they weren't going to enforce their patents during the pandemic. And now they're saying it's endemic. So it's from a legal perspective for a geek like me, it's really going to be uh, interesting and fascinating to, to watch. I agree. Also, I think that's interesting that the company is not seeking to remove the Pfizer vaccine from the market. They're not seeking damages for actions before March 2022. So, no, there's a lot of interesting issues at stake. Yeah, it's going to be a fascinating, fascinating um, case to watch. So, Jennifer, I wanted to ask you about some work you recently did on the challenges of manufacturing biologics, particularly in countries that are still developing the necessary technical and financial capacity What can these countries do to help develop their biomanufacturing capacity? So something I found really interesting in that regard was to look at the experience of countries that today have biologics manufacturing capacity and to see what they did. And here there's a really nice paper published by Merck Life Science called Making Biologics that traces the experience of countries in different regions who took different types of paths towards manufacturing capacity. And Above all, I would say that countries really need to create the right enabling environment. Um, One aspect is infrastructure, need steady access to electricity, to water. Skilled personnel is another important investment that countries have to make, of course. Yeah, it's challenging, yeah. And you see, well, if you talk to local companies, oftentimes one of the biggest challenges they face is recruiting skilled personnel. And sometimes in the early stages of the venture, they'll have to bring a lot of personnel from abroad. And that's quite expensive. Um, another aspect of the enabling environment is, you know, just the environment for doing business, you know, stable macroeconomic environment, um, IP protection. We've talked a little bit during this podcast about trade secrets protection. 
And this is really important for enabling that multinational tech transfer partner to come in and work side by side and really share what they know to design the facility, to train personnel, to sell and maintain equipment, uh, working with the partner, um, to optimize processes for manufacturing and other activities. And IP protection really means the partners can share openly. And then I think something else that's really important, of course, is there has to be a business case for citing manufacturing in that region or country. Um, not every country is going to be home to a biomanufacturing facility, but often a regional basis makes sense. Um, and then I guess trade policies are an example that I've recently been considering. In some countries that have aspirations in biomanufacturing, we do see tariffs on inputs and equipment for manufacturing, and that can really weaken the business case for siting production in that, that location. Like even if the equipment comes in initially tariff-free and their investment rules, you have consumables, you need to maintain the equipment, import spare parts. And if those are heavily taxed, that can really drive up the cost of manufacturing in that country. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think one of the challenges I've seen from the perspective of my clients in some of these developing countries is the regulatory framework that um, they're just, uh, there aren't um, policies and procedures and even personnel in place um, to really be able to adequately one, provide some of the protections needed, whether it's um, some type of biologic exclusivity, we have 12 years here in the U.S., or just even the, the knowledge base to be able to examine these applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, regulatory was a very big one. Um, I mean, first of all, there needs to be a pathway to approval for biologics and biosimilars, especially. And here, streamlining procedures can really help. And I would argue also that coordination if not harmonization among regulators, for example, in a region, perhaps, that could also be very useful. Um, because in COVID, we saw situations where, for example, capacity would open up to produce a component of, say, a vaccine, but that facility wasn't qualified yet by the approval, the regulatory agency in the target market. So it was wasted capacity. So situations like that can be addressed um, through more coordination or harmonization even. So, Jennifer, how would you say the war between Russia and Ukraine is affecting biologics manufacturing in this region? Because I've had some clients who have looked to manufacture biologics in Russia, and um, I would imagine it's a very challenging environment at this time. Yeah, this is a tricky issue um, because the way that value chains are structured today is global. There's a lot of regional manufacturing. This brings the manufacturing closer to customers and to patients. And to the extent that regional manufacturing is happening in Russia under sanctions, there's a problem in the sense that sanctions regimes also have humanitarian exemptions for finished products, usually finished pharmaceuticals, finished vaccines, that kind of thing. But they don't necessarily have exemptions for the inputs and the equipment needed to manufacture those products. And so this is something that really does require some some careful attention and possibly modification of the sanctions rules, um, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis, looking very carefully at the types of ingredients and equipment we're talking about. For Russia, that means they're not going to be able to import the bioreactors and, and other equipment and reagents that they need to be able to make these, um, these biologics or biosimilars. Yeah, the purpose of sanctions regimes is never to hurt ordinary people. And so here, I think it is important for policymakers to look at the unintended consequences potentially of having the exemptions apply to finished products, but not the intermediary products. And this is something that could very well apply in many sanctioned situations. 
So it's something that should be on the front burner to look at as these sanctions regimes are being structured to make sure that they don't have an unintended negative consequence on patients, on people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much again for sending me um, those reports. They were fascinating. And I really can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. This has been an absolute pleasure having this opportunity to talk to you and about uh, all the great work that you and your team are doing. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Ooh, they can come to Geneva and have coffee with me or they can email me. I would recommend going to Geneva. It's a beautiful city. Exactly. Me too. We can have coffee by the lake. Um, or they can email me at jbrandt at innovationinsights with an S dot ch. And I would be happy to have a conversation with them about any of the work we've discussed because I find it totally interesting and exciting and I never tire of talking about it. Well, thank you for all the work that you're doing. It's fascinating. And um, it's really been great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.